Well, good morning and welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. I'm Brian. I'm the pastor here. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to do so after the service. So I hope you'll stick around. We are uh, finishing up just a couple of uh, one-off sermons, three in a row, of various topics and various passages. And this morning we're looking at John 17. Next week, to kick off our fall ministry season, we'll be beginning a a 10-week study of the book of Colossians. So I hope you can come back for that and join us for that kind of extensive study of one of uh, the Apostle Paul's key letters in the New Testament. Uh, This morning, we get to listen in on Jesus' final prayer and the content of what he prays for as he is headed to the cross, as he is headed to complete his mission. We get to look at what he prays for and that he is going home to be with his father once again. And he prays for those that he is leaving behind to carry on his work. It's a rather long passage, but I think it's important that we read all of this chapter as we get our bearings. Let me read it and then we'll pray together. After Jesus said this, he looked on, looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except for the one doomed to destruction, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and they will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for allowing us to listen in on your son's prayer as he is going to the cross, the concerns that he has, that he prays not only for his immediate disciples, but for us. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how we are to live in our world, how we are to be loved by you and thus extend your love into the world. Help us to understand the message of hope and the message of reconciliation that you have given to us, that you have entrusted to us, that we may extend it to others and invite them into your love and into unity. Father, I pray, especially on this day as we are remembering those who died in the conflict that is going on in the world and that it came to a head 10 years ago, we recognize that there is much hurting in this world. There is much conflict. There is ongoing battles waged for the consciences of those in the world. Father, would you let us see as your church our duty to take your love into that broken and fallen world. Not that we have all the answers, but you do. Not that we are sanctified, holy, and righteous, but you are. And would you work through your people Would you work through this church to bring your healing presence to a hurting world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read this passage, there's something that is very obvious as you read the Gospels, but something that is often missed, that Jesus has a mission that he launches, a mission that he himself completes, but then he leaves it to what? A community. He leaves it to a church. He leaves it to you and I, if we are Christians, to carry out and actually complete that mission. It's not because in our own strength and our own power that we are able to do that or that he trusts that we are worthy or able to do that, but that through you and I, through the institution of the church, that Jesus will complete the mission. Now, there is a great deal of cynicism towards the church in our modern day, and a lot of it is probably for good reason. But before we dismiss the church, we ought to be wise to remember two things. One is that the church is a mess because it's made up of people like you and like me. That it's a mess because it's full of fallen, broken sinners who are trying their best to follow after Jesus and fail daily. The failures and the inconsistencies and the self-righteousness that you may see in the church, looking in from the outside, other people also see in you. And we should remember that. The church is also what Jesus died to establish, and he intends it to be the agent through which he will bring renewal and restoration to a fallen world. Even with all of its defects, all of its shortcomings, 
He did not leave a community of perfection in order to complete his mission. And for that, we should actually be quite thankful. For who wants to join a church, join any community, any organization where everyone is better than you at all of their callings? The church is full of broken people, and therefore you can have the freedom to be invited in. If you're here this morning looking in from the outside, though you do see shortcomings and deficiencies, and you'll continue to see them if you become a part of InTown, that that should be, in one sense, a disappointment, but also an invitation that you can have a place here, that Jesus doesn't wait to call you in until you have it all together, until you have gotten rid of your idiosyncrasies and all of your sin. He says, come now. Let me embrace you now in the midst of your struggles and your imperfections. He says about this beautiful mess of a community, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world in verse 18. Did you get that? That in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus into the world for the same purpose that Jesus says, now I entrust that purpose and that mission to this beautiful mess of people, the church. That it's the very same purpose for which Jesus was called into the world that now the church has as its primary purpose. It's not that the church becomes a substitute for Jesus, but it becomes the instrument by which Jesus brings forth his mission into the world by which he shares his great love, by which he grants an offer of forgiveness, that that is done through you as the church. When you are united to Jesus in salvation, you are also united with his entire person and his entire purpose and his body of Christ that has a mission in the world. Aren't we all looking for some mission in life? Aren't we all looking for some greater purpose that we can serve that would give meaning to the daily duties that we have as individuals, as workers, as parents, as children? Underline, what should I do with my life? What do I want to be when I grow up? Underline what happens many, to many of us at midlife where we have a crisis. Underlining these, underlying these things is that question of what larger narrative gives meaning to my life. Leo Tolstoy wrote in a confession, in his book, The Confession, when I thought about the fame that all my literary works would bring to me, I would say to myself, very well, I will become famous. So what? What then? My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, a question lying in the soul of every person. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my life? What is life for? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why hope for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, does my life have any meaning that death cannot destroy. The sad reality is that we often settle for living for ourselves, for seeking personal peace and comfort, and that as we pursue that, thinking that that's where 
true happiness lies, we actually undercut our own happiness. And we see that that is not a grand enough mission to give narrative to our lives. There is nothing for which we would die, and therefore there's nothing for which we will live. There's nothing to live for. Jesus offers you and I something entirely different. He invites you into a grand mission, a grand story of bringing his life-giving presence, his mercy, his forgiveness, his eternal love into contact with other people. Last week, we commissioned a dear family from our church to go across the world to Taiwan. And we saw in their story and in their hope for the future, we saw an exciting mission with a monumental cost. It was very apparent that it was going to cost them to uproot their family and go across the world. But to those of us who stay here, those of us with more customary callings in the world, are we called to anything less? And will it cost us anything less? Is it just those that go overseas that have a part in this grand mission? Or is it each one of us who go to our daily affairs in more customary callings? As we look at Jesus' prayer, rather long introduction, three short points. The power of mission, the plan of mission, and the purpose of mission. What is Jesus praying for? As he gives this prayer... What does he want to see happen in your life and in my life as we follow that? What's the power of it? What's the plan of it? And then what's the purpose of it? First of all, power for mission. It's very simply the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then in 4 and 5, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. What is Jesus praying for here? He is praying for glory. Glory is one of those foundational biblical terms that you see throughout the scriptures. And it's what it's... Through the whole Bible, it contains, glory does, what is constitutive of the nature and the being of God and all of the honor that is due his name. That's what glory is. It's his nature and being, and it's all of the honor, the worship, the praise that is due because of who he is. The glory of God is seen in the Gospels by Jesus, not in seeking glory for himself, but in giving honor to his Father. He prays, give me glory as a means to an end so that the Father would receive glory, so that God would receive glory. He wants his life to reflect and draw people to the merciful love of God. How does he do this? In the context, when he is praying, glorify me, he is asking that the power of God would ensure that his life, death, and resurrection would result in glory to God. That as people observe that chain of events, that they would say, glory be to God. Look at what he has done. Praise him from now into all eternity. As he dies on the cross, he is praying that he will be raised from the dead and return to the eternal glory that he had from before creation. 
Now, I never use Lord of the Rings illustrations because they're kind of overdone and also because all of the characters sound the same to me and I'm always afraid I'm going to get them wrong. You have Sauron and Saruman, you have Erwin and Eowyn, and you have uh, Aragorn and Arathorn. And so, you know, if you know the story and I get it wrong, just go with the flow. I think you'll understand what I'm getting to. But Aragorn is the son of Arathorn. And the, he was the truth uh, heir to the throne of Gondor. But he lived in, uh, among commoners as a ranger. Few people knew his true identity. But after his friends, he and his friends conquered the wicked Sauron, Aragorn was crowned king in a beautiful coronation ceremony in a service before thousands. And this once humble uh, ranger, this obscure ranger, was now clothed in great majesty. Those who thought he was just a commoner, a nobody, a drifter, came to realize that he was actually the king of the whole realm that they lived in. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He exists in eternity. He is eternal royalty. And yet he lays aside his kingly glory to come to earth to bring the true message of the king present in our world. That he became a servant for the sake of rescuing humanity from its sin and folly and even from death. How does he do that? He does it by the king assuming the punishment of a thief, the punishment of a murderer. He goes to the cross to serve those who have run away from God. Those who have rebelled, he says, the king will take their place. The result of this, according to verse 2, is eternal life to all who will trust him. He defines eternal life, Jesus does in verse 3, by knowing God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is more than religion. It's more than just a set of behaviors to follow, but it is a restored relationship of grace. It is that the king comes to you and says, I offer you forgiveness. I offer you eternal life. I don't ask that you earn it. I don't ask that you become a better person in order for me to give you this great gift. It's that I offer it before you change. I offer it before you do anything to anything worthy of it. The wandering son or daughter is brought home again by the self-sacrifice, the servant heart of the king himself. Now, how is this the power of mission? How does that fact that that happens, how does that reality begin to engage you and I in service to other people? Before you can be a missional person, you must experience the mission of Jesus personally. You must see that God has restored your relationship with him out of sheer mercy and grace. The gospel itself. That proclamation that the king has stepped down from heaven and has become your substitute, that's the basis of mission. That he takes all of our sin and wrongdoing and gives us all of his love and forgiveness. That's the power for mission. When this is at the center of the church, when that rings true in the ears of the people that are gathered as the church, when that sits at the center of who you are as a person, that is the power of mission. That will engage you in the lives of other people because you see not only God himself 
Not even God himself said, come to me after you get it all together. But he says, I come to you. I extend my love to you. I embrace you in, the, in spite of your great sinfulness. When this is at the center of the church, it, won't be lo- it will be looking outward rather than inward. It will be looking to the needs around it rather than seeking to serve only those who are already here. That's the power of mission. What about the plan of mission? How are Jesus' people, how are those of us that he prayed for in this prayer uh, called to live in the midst of the world? And the world in John is that uh, the, the cosmos that is aligned against God and all of his purposes. How are those who are designed and given the task of bringing the comfort of the gospel, the, the, the knowledge of the gospel into the world, how are they to live in relation to it? Once you begin to get the gospel deeply, you go from being a chameleon that is indistinct from the world around you and also from being a tribe that is inhabiting a small subsection of the larger society that just simply reinforces your values. It's a protective bubble. When you see what Jesus has done for you, that he has invited you in mission, you go from being a chameleon or a person that inhabits only a tribe to a person that inhabits a community that is in the world but not of the world. Neither a chameleon nor a tribe. Jesus calls his followers to move into the world, whatever their particular calling is, with the gospel as their defining feature. And the gospel keeps you from being a chameleon or a tribe because you possess in the gospel the unswerving, eternal love of God that you don't have to live in the world trying to gain uh, acclaim, trying to gain approval, trying to gain other people's love. You're confident that you have the eternal love of God So you don't have to ask, how do I fit in? You get to ask, how can I be distinct? How can I bring that gospel that has changed me into the lives of other people? And because you're confident in the love and the mission of Jesus, you don't relate to the world out of fear. You don't have to tribalize. You can actually live in the midst of the world, but not as a part of it. You can live distinctly from it. Now, what characterizes this distinction? That's fine in theory. We all, if you're called and you understand the gospel, want to have that sort of life that you can live in a distinct way in the midst of the world without fear. That sounds great. What are the characteristics, though, of a person that lives in the world and not of it, of a church that inhabits the world that it's planted in but doesn't become a chameleon or a tribe? Two things, holiness and joy. Verse 17 and 19, Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in me. What does this mean? What does it mean to be sanctified, to be holy? What Jesus is talking about here is not simply a list of things that once you become a Christian and you still inhabit the world that you grew up in, a list of behaviors that you are to refrain from. Although that certainly is an implication. There are certain things that are outlined in Scripture that are not prescribed for the Christian. However, what he's talking about primarily is being set apart for a purpose. That's what it means to be sanctified, is that you are set apart for a purpose. 
Your calling is no longer self-referential. What am I going to do? What am I going to make out of my life? But your calling is the place where you are deployed for Jesus' mission. That's the very meaning of calling, of vocation. It gives this idea that you have been called out of one way of living into another. That you are no longer living a life of self-reference in pursuit of self, but you're living a life that is given on behalf of Jesus to other people. Even if you're still striving for what you think your calling is, or even if you're stuck in a job that doesn't seem to be all that significant to the mission of Jesus, you can still have great purpose. You can still have a part in the mission of Jesus. We have a, a friend, Katie and I do, a pastor friend who did our uh, marriage counseling, when, or premarital counseling, when we were uh, engaged. And he has this uncanny way of always saying the right thing. And it's so irritating to me because I wish that I had that gift. But he can bring a Bible verse or a passage of Scripture to bear upon a certain situation. And it never sounds trite. It never sounds, you know, uh, weird. It always sounds like, ah, relieving and encouraging. And in their early marriage, they had a number of kids, and uh, my friend's wife was very discouraged because what she felt like she was doing all day was simply changing diapers and making meals and folding clothes and all of those things that are extraordinarily significant to the life of the child. But when you think about the mission of the church, it's kind of hard to understand how those things fit together sometimes in advancing God's kingdom. And she was feeling discouraged. And what he said to her was simply quoted, quoting Jesus. And he says, whatever you have done unto the least of these, you have done unto me. You see, when you get how Jesus works in the world through big things and through minimal, mediocre-seeming things, whether you're a CEO of a large corporation or whether you're, most of your day is given to just changing diapers, you can make a huge contribution to God's mission because you realize that you have been called and set apart in that place for that season. All of us can look at the place that we have been called in our vocation and begin to ask, Jesus, why did you put me here? Help me understand. Help me see how this contributes to your larger holistic mission in the world. The first thing of distinction is holiness. That you go to work no matter what you're doing, being set apart for Jesus' mission. Secondly, it's joy. Verse 13 these things I speak in the world, Jesus says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Everything Jesus is praying, he says, is for our joy. Joy should characterize your life if you understand Jesus. Now, why doesn't it? Why doesn't joy signify the foundational aspect of who you are as a person? One of two things is probably going on. It's either that you haven't allowed, you haven't seen the gospel become written deep into your heart, deep into your soul, that you're not believing it for yourself. Or you simply aren't engaged deeply enough in the mission of Jesus, in the calling that he's given you. 
Either we haven't been captured by the gospel in the way that it's designed to capture us, or we haven't seen yet the fullness of the gospel and how it moves us into the world with a greater purpose, a greater mission, a larger narrative. When you read through the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, you see early Christians who are facing extraordinary, extraordinary persecution, hardship, discomfort, suffering, many of them even facing death. And yet you find a company of joyful people in the midst of that suffering. Now, I'm not talking about glee and happiness. That can wane based upon your season of life. But joy is something that's fundamentally invested in you as you understand the gospel. We reason, if we protect our comfort, if we seek personal fulfillment, that that's the way to find joy. That it's our job in the world to pursue our own joy and comfort. But the gospel says, give up your claims on personal fulfillment. Give up your pursuit of individual comfort and you will be made whole. That Jesus says, give up your life and let me have it. And I will make you complete. I will make you whole. I will interject you into a broken and hurting world and use you to bring healing and delight to lives of people everywhere whether it's the person in the cubicle next to you or whether it's the student at the desk next to you, whether it's in your family, that that can happen through you, not because of your worthiness, not because you have the words to say, but because Jesus can work in spite of you. Be set apart for service to the world. And as you are, you will see yourselves through the good of other people. And that's where you find the greatest joy. Now, finally, and quickly, the purpose of mission. What's this all for? We've seen the power of mission in that you see yourself as not someone who has worked their way into God's happiness, but the, one, but the person that God has granted you his favor in spite of your sinfulness. Then the plan of mission is to live in the world, but not of the world, to live a distinct life of holiness and of joy. And then thirdly, What's the purpose of all this? The purpose of mission, Jesus tells us twice, verse 21 and 23, that the world might know, that the world might believe. In the Old Testament, we read of the coming days that the glory of God would be spread, the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. What are you living for? Does that resonate with you? Does that Old Testament hope have any relevance to the job that you are doing right now? It's difficult to see. We need help in figuring out those things sometimes. When you're sitting at a computer desk for many hours a day, figuring out how do these emails, how do this phone call, how does this contribute to the larger mission? Talk to me. Talk to some of the others, other leaders here at InTown to figure that out because Jesus values what you do and he wants you to see your work through the lens of his mission and his purposes in the world. Do you have a mission in your life that supersedes your day-to-day duties? Maybe your job doesn't seem like a high enough calling. Maybe the daily transactions of your life seems to be at times just a means to an end. It's a paycheck so I can eat and I can pay my rent and then I go back to work and do it over again. And maybe that's why there is boredom and emptiness and despair at times. 
It's not so much about the technical features of your job, though, those are, though we're all made in unique ways. And some of us work in environments that don't, are not life-giving. And maybe we should inspect whether we are fit for something else. But happiness and joy and holiness in your job is not so much about the technical details of what you execute day to day, but it's about the larger story behind them. What causes you to get up in the morning? It has to be something more than making enough money to support your lifestyle. If you get what Jesus is praying for, his gospel going forth, it eliminates both pride as well as insignificance. It eliminates pride because it says that Jesus works in spite of you. It is not because you are so smart or so eloquent or so great at what you do. It's that Jesus works oftentimes through you, sometimes around you, and oftentimes in spite of you. Jesus moves through sinful, broken people to establish his kingdom, to accomplish his purposes. It eliminates the pride that we may have in our own, our own achievement. But he also advances the kingdom through the weakest of means. Even the most insignificant-seeming jobs have his blessing, have his favor, and can be utilized for his larger purposes to bring joy, to bring life, to bring forgiveness into the lives of other people. Whatever your calling is, it can be infected with the joy of God. You have a specific calling a particular calling that involves vocation, that involves parenthood, that involves a number of other things like that. You also have a personal calling to be a part of Jesus' church. You have a calling unto vocation, but you also have a calling unto salvation. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you're religious or not, whether you're dutiful or lazy, whether you're happy or distressed, Jesus offers you the gospel, and he says, come and be a part of my church. I will grant you salvation. I will grant you forgiveness. I will grant you my love eternally. Let's all, wherever we are coming from this morning, take hold of that love as we continue to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a time where we can pause, where we can reflect, where we can exit the noise of our world for just enough time to hopefully see you afresh, to be reminded of the promises of the gospel, to take one step closer to you if we are still unsure about becoming a Christian. Father, I pray that you would use your word, that you would use the worship of your people, that you would use the songs that we sing, that you would use now this table as a calling to a holy life, to a life of great joy and of great distinction, not because of our own innate talents, but because of your power and your love for the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.